Welcome back for another helping of the Just Checking In podcast. This is episode 59, if you can believe that. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Ven, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Vent. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have an answer about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. My special guest for this episode is Florence Craig. Flo works as a journalist and social media producer for BBC Real, telling stories about amazing ideas, people and places. In this episode, we talk about Flo's journalism journey, her Welsh roots, comparison culture in journalism and self-care when it comes to social media. We also talk about two long-term health conditions called Crohn's disease and primary sclerosing cholangitis and how they have affected her life and her mental health. This is how our check-in went. Flo, welcome to the Just Checking In Pod, pal. Thanks so much for coming on and taking time out of your very busy journalism schedule to talk to me. First off, how are you and how are you managing with everything that's going on right now in the world? I know that you have moved out recently and you've, you're into a new gaff, is that right? Yeah, so this week I moved into a new place. So I am now in like a bigger room, better to work from home from. But at the same time, you asked me how I'm doing. I'm doing well now, but on Tuesday, I was stressed because I had to basically hire a van and drive it myself through central London with all our stuff. So coming from rural Wales, I'm not used to driving in, you know, cities at all, let alone a van. So yeah, my pulse was a little bit high then, but I'm good today. I'm good. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. I'm good. I think surviving is the term I always use where for stuff right now because I'm not great, but I'm not horrendous. Well, I think that can be expected at the moment. It's good that you're recognising that. But I think with everything that's going on in the world, we're in lockdown number two. We've had months and months of this, you know. I think all we can expect of ourselves and of each other is to survive and to just be kind to ourselves because it's not a normal time. It's not a normal year. So be easy on yourself. Don't be uh, too hard on yourself if you're having bad days. Exactly. And for the listeners, we technically work together, but like 95% of the people I connected with through work, it was actually through the magic of social media that we got to know each other and got chatting, didn't we? Yeah, thanks to Twitter. So I can't remember which one of us popped up first. But yeah, we just kind of we'd seen each other kind of interacting on Twitter for a while. And I think just eventually we just kind of connected and realised, oh, yeah, we work for the same place. Right, we've got that out of the way. Shall we just get started? Let's start the pod by talking about your journalism journey flow. So why don't you tell the listeners why you became inspired to be a journalist, where your love for filming, storytelling and social media producing began and then how you got into the industry? So I kind of didn't always know I wanted to be a journalist. It was something that kind of fell, didn't so much fall into my lap, but the love of it fell into my lap. Growing up, I was flitting between different ideas. Like one minute I wanted to be a doctor, then I wanted to be a vet, then I wanted to be an architect at one point. I really did not know what I wanted to be. But I went to uni and did an obscure degree, evolutionary anthropology, because I thought, hey, human evolution is really cool. 
I did that. And whilst at uni, I started writing for a student newspaper just because it was something to do. It was a good social. And I was like, oh, I actually really enjoy this. And then one day I was reporting on some student protests and a reporter from ITV said he wanted to interview me about what was going on on campus. And he interviewed me and he said, have you thought about going into journalism? And I said to him, uh, oh, no, I, I, I couldn't do that. I don't really think I'd be a very good journalist. I'd never really met a journalist before. So in my head, it was like this, you know, career you could never get into. So way beyond me, coming from where I come from, I'd never met a journalist before, let alone a broadcast journalist. I didn't even know, this is quite embarrassing, I didn't even know that there was, you know, such a thing as a broadcast journalist. I always just saw the news readers as presenters, not as actual journalists, which is on reflection a little bit silly of me but he spoke to me and he was like you should definitely go into that I think you've got a talent for it and you should go into broadcasting and because he saw I had a camera on me and I used to go around taking photos of all the student goings on I've always loved photography I did a little bit of wedding photography for some money on the side as a teenager and he was like no no you can combine these things broadcast journalists you know they use cameras they use recording equipment the penny dropped and I was like what that's a job. Somebody will pay me to like write and record and edit. So yeah, that's how I kind of understood how I kind of came across the job. And then from that, I became absolutely hellbent on becoming a broadcast journalist. And I applied for some master's programs and some scholarships. And I got a scholarship for Cardiff University, a partial scholarship. And yeah, I went and did my master's degree. I couldn't have done it without the scholarship. I wouldn't have had the money because it was a partial scholarship. I struggled even with it being a partial scholarship. You know, there were times where I was like, right, serial for three days. But, you know, I did it and I'm so happy that I did. Before we get into the journey itself in more detail, I want to talk about the two long-term health conditions you live with first, if that's okay, because I think they give so much context to your journalism journey here and breaking in. And then also your own journey, which we'll cover a bit later. So you live with two conditions. One's called Crohn's disease, which is, I think, fairly well known and has come a long way in in regards to visibility in the public. But there's also another less well-known one you live with called primary sclerosing cholangitis. Could you tell the listeners how both these conditions affect you in your day-to-day life and then how they impacted your ability to break into the journalism industry itself? Yes. So I've been living with these conditions since I was about 11 or 12. I was diagnosed at 12, but I might have been poorly for a few years before that. The doctors can't really work that out. Crohn's disease, lots of people know about it. More people should, but in case the listeners don't know, it's a chronic inflammatory bowel disease that basically causes inflammation of my intestines, my mouth, my esophagus, and basically just means that I'm tired a lot of the time, frequent bathroom breaks, and I don't absorb all the nutrients and vitamins that I need. So again, that can make you tired and you can feel quite rotten, you know, when you're not getting all your vitamins because your intestines aren't absorbing that. The other primary sclerosing cholangitis, not many people know about. It's very rare. I think only about 6,000 people in the UK have it. It mainly it mainly affects older men. The majority of people have it. A man, in their, they get diagnosed in the 50s and 60s. But sometimes women and children can get it. And I was such a person. I was 11 or 12. And that condition, primary sclerosis and cholangitis, is a condition that's progressive and chronic. So basically, the ducts that carry bile from my liver 
to my intestines, they are slowly being damaged by my immune system, causing toxins to back up into my liver, which you can imagine, it's not fun, it's not pretty. So it does cause daily symptoms of tiredness again, itch, because I've got toxins in my bloodstream that shouldn't be there. It can make you quite itchy. What else? I can get brain fog. That's quite common to anybody who knows me. (laughs) Other symptoms, you know, feeling sick, not being able to hold down food sometimes. It depends on the day. It depends on whether I'm having a good few months or a bad few months. But yeah, the condition at the moment, I'm doing all right, doing a lot better than doctors would have expected. But they are both conditions that you can't really forget about for a day. You do remember you've got them. You do remember the symptoms, whether you're being careful about what you eat, whether, you know, your mind goes blank whilst talking to somebody or itching. It's something that, you know, you are aware of every day. When it comes to how they've affected your journalism journey, pal, you told me off fair that managing the day-to-day side of work alongside them can be really difficult. And sometimes you have to push yourself through those bad days. Could you go into more detail about that for me? Yeah, so one of the main symptoms is tiredness. I say tiredness, I think the medical term would be fatigue. You know, it's not just a case of I am tired today. It's a case of it hurts to get out of bed and I feel really, really rotten. That doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with having a full-time job, especially one as demanding as journalism. But for me, how that impacts the day-to-day is that when I'm tired... I feel like I'm not on my A game. I might miss things and I beat myself up for it, you know? I think anybody would, but it's not productive or constructive for me to be there beating myself up for something I can't control, but I will. And it's something that I'm having to train myself out of. You know, I'm very new to the journalism industry. I've only been at the BBC for, I think, like 14, 15 months now. And I'm starting to just train myself to be like, hey, you're having a bad day, but you had three really good days and you did some really good work. Be kind to yourself. I think being kind when I'm having those bad days is the main thing. And recognizing that you're not going to produce your best work today. So perhaps don't try to, you know, do all these interviews and all these things, because if you're not on your A game, it's not your best work. Just have a day where you take some time for yourself and go try again the next day. Let's talk about your journey in a bit more detail now, pal, because I understand you got your big break when you joined BBC Wales. So why don't you tell me how that came about? Was that a big moment in your life, especially as you said earlier in the pod that you'd come from a rural part of Wales and you knew zero journalists. So you definitely earned this all yourself. Yes. So it came about in actually quite a strange and fortunate way that basically on my master's course, we all kind of enjoy different things. Some people were really great news readers. Some people were great reporters or great on the radio decks. But I was kind of known for the one who loved shooting and editing video. You know, that was my area, which I really love, you know. Basically, one day my lecturer comes and speaks to me and just says, I imagine this is how the conversation went. He'd just been on the phone to the head of digital news at BBC Wales. And due to some unforeseen circumstances, they didn't have enough video editors for the next couple of days and were really struggling. They couldn't get anybody in last minute. And had asked my lecturer, do you have somebody you can just send over for a couple of days just to bridge the gap? It's not a job. We just need them for two days, maybe three. And my lecturer said, get over there now. Get over the BBC Wales building. And I was like, what? I was in my kind of uni clothes. I was like, okay, right. And (laughs) got across to BBC Wales thinking I was going for an interview. So I've just quickly, you know, got into like a suit, 
power suit you know I'm like right I'm gonna go have this interview and I got over there and no they just sat me down at a chair and were like have you edited have you ever edited on Final Cut Pro before and I was like no I edited on Premiere which is a different editing platform altogether and they were like oh you'll pick it up show us what you can do and they put a story on my lap and said make a package I'd literally only done this in principle you know as a student so I was like, right, oh God, I've got to be on my A game here. I put it together, showed it to people next to me being really helpful and you know, saying, oh, you need to put the BBC logo in the corner or you need to do this. But I produced it, showed it to the news editor and he was like, great, come back tomorrow. And, you know, I did a few shifts thinking that was it. And then after two or three days, he said to me, when do you finish your master's? And I said, oh, in, you know, two weeks time, I've got my final exam on Friday morning or something I said. And he said, start with us Friday afternoon. That was it. He basically thought I was a good video editor and just said, right, we'll have you. You start video editing for us. And yeah, I had about a two hour gap between my final exam and starting, you know, video editing on the news. Yeah, that was my big break. And I haven't really looked back since. And what were some of your favourite memories of this time at BBC Wales or some of the stories you worked on, which gave you a sense of pride or maybe a boost to your self-esteem, confidence or mental health? I think just being selected by my lecturer alone, by him thinking like, hey, you are good at video editing, I'm going to put you forward for this. That was a massive boost in myself because just going back to the uni thing, I felt like I shouldn't be there. A lot of my masters, I felt like I don't belong here. And it wasn't because of the people, they were all lovely and the lecturers were lovely and really supportive. It was more to do with the fact that all these other people on my course were like talking about broadcasters who they'd looked up to since they were 11 and almost as if they'd built their whole life towards being a journalist and had always wanted to be one. And then little old me has just decided on a whim, this is a really cool job. I want to do this. I had thought about journalism before, but not in a way that was achievable. And suddenly I'm around all these people who are like saying, oh, you know, I've been a newspaper journalist for five years, but I wanted to come do my master's now. And I've been this and I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I doing here? So it was a big boost to my self-esteem when my lecturer said, you're good at this, off you go to BBC Wales. But I learned so much in the, what, four or five months I freelanced for them. So, so much because it's one thing doing the news in theory and then being dumped right on the breaking news desk. Things are happening and you're cutting them really quickly. I learned a lot. I became a much better journalist for it. I became much quicker with my reactions to things. And I started having like these natural instincts to how to tell a story. One story I was really proud of because it went wrong, but also went well. It was just really built up my resilience was after, you know, I'd had a few months of video editing. I was sat in the office in the newsroom, mostly doing edits that other people had gone and filmed and I'm putting it together, or some days I'd be doing the social media, you know, writing the breaking news tweets and that sort of thing. One day they didn't have a camera operator and I just felt a bit emboldened and said, I'll do it. I can film as well as edit, send me on the story. And, you know, they were really lovely and they were like, yeah, you do it. And they <laughs> they sent me out with this camera that I'd never used before and I'd all play with it in the room, but they were like, get down there, you need to get to the story. So I was like, right, 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 this looks good it's a DSLR, I should be able to go shoot this. I broke the number one rule that my lecturer had always told me, and it's check the batteries, check you've got spare batteries. I was in such a rush. It was my first time being sent out on a BBC story by myself to film it and be the interviewer. 
I just didn't think. I got there and I set up the camera. It all finally looked great. I was like really being really fussy about how the shots looked. I was feeling bold. I wanted, you know, I wanted the news editor to be like, wow, she's good. <laughs> and, you know, I set up the camera and I am literally about five minutes into it. And I can notice that the audio is not right. And I was like, oh, the mic set out of battery. No worries. I've got another mic. I can use this other mic that I've got. I'll plug it into the top of the camera. And I was like, right, continue going. Then all of a sudden the camera turned off. The camera was out of batteries. And I went into the case. There was nothing. And I was like, oh, my God. They're never going to send me on a story ever again. To put it in perspective, it's quite funny on reflection. But at the time, I panicked so much. I told this lovely person I was interviewing. They were like, don't worry, don't worry. Come back tomorrow. And I was like thinking, I might not be here tomorrow I was thinking I'm gone I'm gone because I was freelance as well I was like they're just gonna think who is this person so I get back in my car I'm about to drive back to the BBC Wales building and I'm like I need a McDonald's because I saw a drive-through McDonald's and I thought I was fine I pull up into the McDonald's and the window come to the window and I burst out crying in front of the McDonald's person and I remember being like I want a milkshake please I'm lactose intolerant as well so that was just a form of you know like that was just on top of everything you know like I'm gonna order a milkshake because I'm in this but I just start bawling to this person I don't know what they thought was going on they were very they seemed very scared of me and me this milkshake I cry in McDonald's car park makeup everywhere and I just think right I've got to actually go back now because I in my head I was like I'm never going back I'm never going back but I was like I've got all their kit I've got to go back so I wipe my eyes I drive back into the newsroom. It was so obvious I'd been crying in the car. It was so obvious. Everybody in the newsroom could probably see that I'd had this breakdown in McDonald's. And I said to the news editor, I ran out of batteries. And do you know what? They were so lovely. They just kind of said, it's a feature story. It's not a news story. Go back tomorrow and do it right. And for God's sake, take some batteries. And long story short, I went back the next day with batteries filmed a really nice piece, put it together, and it made it to video of the day on the BBC News app. So, you know, my first piece, and it was recognised not just at BBC Wales, it was recognised at BBC UK. I was really happy with it, but at the same time, (laughs) if only the viewers could have known the whole story behind collecting that, I feel like it was a bit of an epic. But I learned so much from that, so much, which is things can go wrong. It can be your fault or it can't be. This time it was my fault. but Sometimes you are just going to have to ball in McDonald's. You know, you're going to have to have a cry because that's completely healthy. I think it would have been more unhealthy if I'd just strong-armed myself into the BBC News building and said, oh, the batteries, and, you know, kicked off, you know, the tech people, like, didn't put a spare pair of batteries. No, it was my fault. I didn't check that they'd put a spare pair in there. And, you know, I learned from it. I will never go out on a story without a spare pair of batteries now. You made the move to the Big Smoke in London after this, where you joined BBC Real. Can you talk to me about how this came about? And then we'll go on to the topic of career FOMO and comparison culture, which you wanted to talk about on the pod as well. I've always wanted to be in London. I don't know, it's always been this sort of pinnacle of where I wanted to be since I was very little. You know, I didn't know what I wanted to be, but I knew I wanted to be in London. And I was freelancing BBC Wales, but my freelancing was coming to an end because the person who had been the video editor was coming back. So I was like, right, I need to start applying for things. I applied for stuff in Cardiff, Manchester, London. London was really where I wanted to be. 
but I was really fortunate to get a 10-week contract at BBC Children in Need. They needed somebody to do their social media for the 2019 Appeal Show. And I went to Manchester and loved it. And I was doing that when I got a phone call, basically, saying, are you still interested in the job you applied for at BBC Real? I thought, what? When did I apply for that? Back months ago, I had. And basically, they'd reopened the applications. They decided that they wanted to hire again. And they said, are you still interested? And I said, yeah, I'll, 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 yeah, I'll come in for an interview. I had to do a couple of tasks, but I went in for an interview. At this point, I'm living on my friend's airbed in their spare room because I was just finishing up my Children in Need contract in Manchester. I basically had a couple of freelance shifts at BBC Wales. So I was just between places, between my cousin's sofa and on an airbed. And somebody's saying, hey, we want to interview for a 12-month contract in London. I'm like, right, yes, I'm going to try so hard to get this. And I turned up, I was straight away just like, wow, I'm in London. And look, I'm in a BBC building in London. How cool is this? That alone was just, I was so excited. And, you know, I had this interview and I didn't think it had gone well. I really didn't. Just because I felt really young. I just felt like everybody around me looked like proper journalists. And I was in my head being like, I'm 22 and I feel young. I feel like I'm not, I might not be ready for this. But yeah, long story short, I basically got back on the train And I was sitting on the train and the person opposite me saw my BBC lanyard was hanging out of my thing, which was bad of me. And he was like, I work for the BBC too. Had this lovely chat where he was like, it doesn't matter whether you get it or not, you're going to find something. And he was just this lovely pep talk from this lovely stranger who I didn't catch his name, which is ridiculous because he worked at the BBC too. And then I got off the train next morning I wake up to a phone call that they wanted me and a week later I was moving to London last minute trying to find a flat I found a great bunch of flatmates and you know that's when I started it was crazy it was in the space of a month in November last year I lived in Manchester, Mid Wales, Cardiff and London in the space of a month, just because I had nowhere to go other than my family home if I really wanted to go back to mum and dad for a bit. But I was so determined that I wanted to work for the BBC that I was like, anybody got a sofa, anybody got an airbed, I'm going to sleep where I can until somebody offers me a contract. And yeah, it paid off. Well, that's a testament to anyone who's listening about the lesson of persistence, basically. A big part of this topic, flow, and it's one you wanted to talk about, is the experiences you've had with career FOMO and comparison culture in journalism, especially on social media. Just tell me how these feelings started to come to the surface for you and then how it's impacted your mental health within your career and then more widely in your general life as well. I was always somebody who had social media as where I would have a laugh. During uni, it would be like my Instagram and Twitter, here's me messing around basically on a night out or something like so many people use social media for that right or like here's me sharing memes I very quickly learned that you know as a journalist that's not what's done right so I then started like a good little journalist (laughs) going on Twitter and following all the people who you're meant to follow high profile journalists people in the media industry And I had never had a sense of FOMO from social media before. Loads of people say that they do, you know, oh, I see my friend, I see somebody on a night out or I see somebody having a cocktail and I wish I was there. Why didn't they invite me? 
I'd never had that. I'd been very content in that when I want to go out, I'll go out. When I have the energy to do things, I'll do them. But all of a sudden, so this is when I just moved to London. So about like, well, this time last year, I started following all these London journalists and media people. And essentially what I did was I created my own personal hell. I created this echo chamber where basically I was coming so, so informed about everything that was going on. Brilliant. That helps my career. It helps me know more in depth. I was becoming a better journalist for that. But at the same time, I suddenly found myself asking myself things like, well, why haven't you done that? They're a young journalist too. Why are you not working that hard? Seeing it as some sort of personal fault in myself, telling myself things like, well, that journalist's gone and done this much in this much time. Why haven't you done that? Other questions like, they've got a great voice. They've got a great radio voice. You know, I've never had an in- interest in being a radio journalist in terms of like a newsreader. Suddenly I was being like, great, why don't you sound like a newsreader? And things like that. Oh, why can't you be good at this? And I was suddenly finding all these faults in myself that I'd never found before. And Twitter, I think, for journalists, it's for any industry. If you surround yourself with all the people in the same industry as you, it almost becomes a massive pissing contest. Like, I've got 10,000 followers. I've got 10,100 followers. That sort of thing where I was suddenly, like, thinking, God, you know, I used to use Twitter to share a meme or tell people, like, what I was having for breakfast, you know? Like, not telling them how many people watched my latest piece. I understand why people do it. It's a dog-eat-dog industry where I think a lot of people have to put their stuff out there because that's how you get seen. That's how you get picked up, particularly if you're freelance. You need the world to see you're doing this good journalism. But I just feel like, for me, it personally created this place where whenever I was picking up my phone, I felt like I was going to work. You know, it was no longer something for having fun and communicating with my friends. It was now like, right, I want to tweet about this thing and it's just funny thing that's happened to me. Oh, but what if somebody interprets it this way? Or what if somebody thinks I'm not very professional? I remember I went through a period a few months ago during the first lockdown where I was changing my Twitter bio. Like, I'm not embarrassed to say this. I was changing my Twitter bio like twice a day, three times a day, because I kept reading it and being like, "Mm, that's not right. I think it needs to be a bit more this. Or, oh, that doesn't make me look funny. That makes me look stupid or being so hypercritical of how people were going to be perceiving me online I'd never had this before so yeah I think one following all these people in the same industry has made me a better journalist in terms of I am way more informed I can see the trends that are going on in the industry I'm getting other people's insights but in terms of my mental health it's created this sort of comparison culture and I no longer see my phone as particularly something that I do for recreation it's you know I've got LinkedIn Twitter Instagram and and most of the time I'm doing work through them particularly because I I'm a social media producer and journalist so my job is social media so even when I'm not on downtime I'm looking at social media interfaces all day so yeah it is a case of my whole life is on social I've got to try and build up resilience for that type of working lifestyle have you got better at curating your social media spaces where you are now like muting people that you don't particularly want to see in your feed or you're following the right sort of people where they give you positivity instead of negativity? 
this is something that's only come in, I would say, honestly, the last eight weeks, 12 weeks. And that's because in the summer after lockdown, I suddenly was feeling a lot brighter and a lot more, you know, I think a lot of people were. I was just thinking like, thank God that's over. Basically, I I just started thinking, wow, Twitter kind of made me really miserable during lockdown. I was in my little childhood bedroom with my mum and dad, my lovely mum and dad. But I'd be saying about things that were going on in the journalism world and, you know, how people were making me feel. And my parents would just be like, but you're such a great journalist and we love you so much. And, you know, that's so great to hear. That's the most loving thing a parent can say. But I was just being like, no, you don't understand. I'm not a good journalist. I'm not. I'm not doing what these people are doing on Twitter. Look at all their followers and great pieces of journalism. And then I just, I started reading some journalism books in the summer and it kind of just made me think from reading them I was like the point of journalism and the reason I went into journalism and the reason I started writing in the first place was because I liked helping people tell other people's stories I didn't phrase that very well but yeah I like being able to facilitate telling stories I have never wanted to be the center of attention when it comes to my journalism I would never put pictures of myself in my journalism I'd never write in the first person I get uncomfortable in front of a camera you can probably tell from me doing the podcast I'm not exactly uh, (laughs) you know I'm not exactly well versed in it you know I basically just told myself hey you went into journalism because you want to tell other people's stories it's about them it's not about you you like you can love your job but you don't need to be putting your face everywhere and getting everybody knowing you you can be you know this sort of silent figure who's producing things behind the scenes and loving her job but not getting stressed by the whole being a face in the industry and once I started thinking that and thinking right the people that you're getting career FOMO or jealousy of do you want to be them do you want that exact job and when I started realizing that I was like yeah why am I comparing myself to somebody who's a radio newsreader or why am I comparing myself to somebody who presents the news or writes opinion pieces that's not what I do that's not what I want to do that's fine everybody has different levels of privilege I benefit from white privilege I benefit from sounding middle class and people have assumed you know I've gone to Oxbridge or like I'm posh I'm not I'm from rural Wales and I benefit from those privileges, but I haven't benefited from health privilege. I haven't benefited from other privileges that perhaps mean that I'm a step behind at the moment. My attendance in school was 40% because I was so sick. I had long periods in hospital. I've got to keep telling myself, you're doing well. Look where you are now. You would never as a child have expected to even have a job, to be able to hold down a job. And here I am. So I've got to keep reminding myself that. And, you know, even saying it now, it's like, remind yourself you're doing well. You're 24. Don't go comparing yourself to somebody who's like 50 in the industry. <laughs> Looking ahead now, Flo, what objectives or dreams do you have in journalism? You know, you said you feel a bit uncomfortable in front of camera, but is that something you'd ever dream of doing one day? Or are you comfortable just being behind it for now? I'm definitely most comfortable behind it. I'm definitely most comfortable when I am producing, video editing and putting things together, feeling that creative side. But at the same time, I absolutely love people and working with people, interviewing people. And I think being a reporter is not something I particularly aspire to. But if that was something that 
fell onto my lap, I would try and do my best. And I have reported before. And I think I did an all right job for a girl who's just entered the industry. But never say never. Basically, I never thought I would be where I am now. So yeah, I think I've just got to see where my career takes me. I love video editing. I love what I do. But maybe one day I'd be in front of the camera. But for now, I'm very happy where I am. And just finally, for any aspiring journalists, especially women who might be tuning into this pod, pal, what advice or message would you give them from your experience? I think really stop putting journalism on a pedestal. Stop thinking that is something that isn't for me. It's true that journalism has barriers. Well, not just in my opinion, statistically, there is a disproportionate amount of white people in journalism middle-class people, upper-middle-class people. There are disproportionate amounts of privately educated people and Oxbridge types. There are too many of them in the industry. But that doesn't mean there aren't people like you. Like, if you don't think you fit that mold, that doesn't mean journalism isn't for you. There are ways in. There are, you know, scholarships you can get to do your master's. If you want to go a different route, there are, you know, training schemes. There are apprenticeships. I think stop putting it on a pedestal and stop looking at certain people who are the classic, I would say, mold of journalism. The industry is diversifying slowly. And, you know, that's easy for me to say as a white woman. But I think that for disabled people, such as myself, people from different ethnic minority backgrounds, etc., getting better, stop putting it on a pedestal. You can get there. We've checked in about your journalism journey. Let's dive a bit deeper and talk about your own journey in a bit more detail, Flo. So firstly, why don't you talk me through your early life growing up in Wales, your teenage years, and whether looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Flo we meet here? I have always been a very extroverted person, you know, putting on performances for my parents as like a toddler and being like, look at me, look at me, I'm, I'm playing my toy, you must watch me play with my toys. <laughs> I was very much known for that, always playing with my toys and getting people to watch, always crafting, creating mess, reading. I was very much a hyperactive, constantly moving child. And then I hit about 10 or 11, and very quickly I became very, very tired, very sleepy, no energy, kind of low mood. And mum and dad, I think they thought that I was just going through a growth spurt and kind of coming into my teenage years. But then I was getting recurrent infections, just random infections. The GP just thought, you know, it happens sometimes. Sometimes people just get frequent, you know, chest infections or urinary infections. But one night I just had a really, really high temperature. I think it's about 40 degree temperature. I was quite floppy and just not with it. And my parents panicked, took me to hospital. And they basically found that my liver wasn't functioning properly at all. I was very poorly. They couldn't work out what it was. You know, it wasn't classic symptoms of what they could, they couldn't work out what it was. They were like, what has this child got wrong with them? And they basically, doctors did every test under the sun in this rural Welsh hospital that basically had never seen anything like this. They thought basically I must have had a virus. It was going to go away. So they sent me home. But over a few months, I lost so much weight. I was very, very skinny, more and more tired, sick, not keeping food down, just really, really miserable. And 
doctors were getting more and more worried because the weight loss when you're just about to become a teenager is just not normal. Specialists from Swansea, then from Cardiff, were shipped up to Mid Wales to see me. Then eventually they were like, she needs to go to Birmingham Children's Hospital. This is about 10, 11 months after I first started getting poorly. They were like, she needs to go into a children's hospital and, you know, we need to get to the bottom of this now. Um, And luckily they did because when I went there, they straight away did an operation and were like, you've got this really rare liver disease. And really that's when my life changed completely. I was put on some really, really hefty medication that basically it's immune suppressive. So my immune system was basically dampened down hugely. And from that, I went from being this super skinny kid who had just entered year seven to I put on five stone in about three months because the medication that they gave me is a type of steroid, but also they gave me another medication, which is immune suppressive. And it causes you not only for your appetite to increase, but also it causes you to retain water. So people just thought I was fat. People were mean. I'm going through this really serious condition that kills people it's not uncommon for people to die of psc particularly because it affects older men older men die of it but then these doctors are like this is a young girl who's got this condition we can't let that happen we need to treat her and treat her quite aggressively kids are mean they're like 12 13 year old kids and they're just seeing me fat and they aren't putting two and two together they aren't thinking oh, maybe it isn't because she's overeating. Maybe it's because she's retaining water and her liver is making her swell, which it was. My liver made me swell up. But yeah, it was tough. Like my teenage years were like, I don't like to sound like a sob story, but my teenage years were a case of just feeling ugly and fat because all of my best friends, you know, they kind of grew into beautiful, beautiful women. And Part of my condition meant that I didn't go through puberty until I was 16 or 17 either because I was so poorly. So obviously you're seeing your friends turn into teenagers, then adults before your eyes, and you're just kind of, you feel like the fat little gremlin. (laughs) And I think it did really affect my confidence. I went from this really extroverted, confident kid to somebody who very much deals with trauma with humor. You can probably tell I joke about a lot of things. I fully recognize that. I was known as the fat and funny one. But then I got very poorly again in year 11. And I lost a lot of weight. And surprise, surprise, people suddenly found me attractive. And which as a teenager, you know, you're going through all these horrific medical procedures, and you're very poorly, hardly ever in school. But all my teenage brain could tell me is, Oh, well, at least I look hot now. <laughs> not that I not that I think I look hot, but like I, teenage me was like thinking like, who cares if I lost the weight for come poorly? I look conventionally attractive now. Great. And yeah, I think a lot of my teenage years were spent about appearance, wanting to look and be like everybody around me. But I'm never going to be like the people around me. I'm never going to be healthy. I've got a progressive condition. So I think... Now, reflecting on that growing up process, I've hit a happy medium where I'm not this super loud extroverted kid that I used to be because nobody is. Nobody is how they are when they're a little kid because little kids don't know what a mortgage is, don't know what, you know, they don't know the pressures of adult living. But I definitely have hit a 
more content part in my life where I'm fully come to terms with the fact that I've got this condition for life, what these conditions, I am going to get poorlier as I get older. But at the same time, I've come to terms with the fact that, hey, sometimes I may get super spotty, rashy and put on a bunch of weight because I have to, because that's what treatment does. But there will be periods when I'm very healthy and I look conventionally attractive. I've just learned to kind of stop tying my physical appearance to health because it doesn't matter. What matters is that I'm here and I'm I'm healthy and happy. You know, it doesn't matter what I look like. What you've just said there, has your conditions given you a more positive outlook on life and an ability to live life to the fullest? Yes, I think they have. That is a good question. I think a lot of people do ask me that when they find out that I'm poorly. And they say, you're so positive. You're so like, jokey and smiley. How do you do it? It's like, because you're either laughing or you're crying, right? But also, I think people give me too much credit. They think that I'm like, consciously making this decision, like, life is crap. I'm gonna just be really happy. No, it's not like that. It's literally, I've had these conditions now for 12 years. I went through my, you know, teenage phase where I was like, I'm fat, I'm ugly, but not actually recognizing, hey, that doesn't matter. Deal with your health, not your appearance. And I've kind of realized like the goal of life is being content. And I think I'm achieving that through recognizing I've got these conditions and just being like, I can't change that. So let's do what's going to make me happy or make me content. It's not a conscious thing. I recognize like sometimes when I'm having a really poorly day, I'm a nightmare to be around. You know, I'll be like, somebody will be there being like, oh, can I get a cup of tea? Can I like help you? If I'm in hospital, I don't want any visitors. I just want to be mopey and annoyed and angry at life. You can't be happy all the time. But I would say that I am probably more positive than a lot of people. And I think that that does just come from appreciating things more. Sometimes I'm just like, something will happen. I'll be like, wow, I never thought this would happen to me. Imagine if like sick 15-year-old Flo could see this. That's why I think I've got perspective, which some people don't have. They don't have those really low lows to compare the highs to. That's a bit naive of me to say that because everybody does have their obstacles. You know, I'm saying that. But a lot of people just walk around with disabilities or, you know, trauma that they don't wear as openly as I do. Given your disabilities and conditions are invisible to most people, what subconscious or conscious biases have you received because of them? And if there are people listening who might not be sure how to talk to someone, what are the right things to say and what are the wrong things to say? Okay, so this is a really good one. A big thing for me is verging on too much information, but like Toilets, disabled toilets, right? They have, most of them have the like disabled sign, the classic person in a wheelchair. And putting that into wider perspective, so many people just think disability means wheelchair. And, you know, people who use wheelchairs, they have disabilities. But, you know, somebody who has ME also has a disability. Somebody who has a mental health condition has a disability. All of these things are valid and for me the sort of biggest obstacle in terms of that has been getting people to let me use disabled toilets okay so (laughs) the amount of times I have you know 
I've got Crohn's, right? When you got to go, you got to go. The amount of times I've been like, I've gone to, I've been in public and I've seen a restaurant across the road and I'm like, I know I'm not a customer, but I've got to go. I run and I go, sorry, I've got Crohn's disease. I Can I use your toilet? And they just go, no, what? Like, no. Or the amount of times I've gone to use a disabled toilet and I've come out the disabled toilet to people tutting me. I've even had people pull me aside and be like, how dare you use that toilet? There's a queue here. People want to be using that toilet and you've just used it. I'm like, what? Are you expecting me to wheel out of the toilet? I don't need a wheelchair, but I do have a disability. And I think that's the really difficult thing. And a lot of people who have inflammatory bowel disease or any other hidden disability will feel affinity with that. They'll be like, yeah. The toilet thing is just like the pinnacle of like ableism ableism from a disabled toilet I've even had it in clubs so I've actually got quite a bizarre story where I was in a club in Cardiff and I went to the toilet and the girls toilet queues are always massive in clubs the queue was huge and I was like I'm in danger here I can't queue (laughs) so I like basically shouted at the queue like please let me through I need the toilet and these girls are just all like no, like we all need the toilet. And I'm like, no, I really need the toilet. But I was going through a phase where I was kind of having like a, <laughs> I didn't want to tell people, I've got Crohn's disease. I've got bowel disease. I was going through a phase where I was like, why should I have to tell you I've got a disease for you to let me use the toilet? Just have some common decency. But I've realized that sometimes you do have to signpost it. But at this point, I didn't want to shout it. So I was like, right, what am I going to do? There's a disabled toilet. Got the disabled toilet. It's locked. And I'm like, oh my gosh, they want me to have a radar key, one of those special keys for it. I didn't have one on me. Like I've gone out clubbing and like nearly nothing. I didn't even have a bag. It was all in my jeans pocket. Like I wasn't carrying my radar key, stupid me. So I run to the bar and I'm like, I really need your disabled toilet. And I basically had a grilling from the guy at the bar. He not only asked me like, why? It was like, what is Crohn's disease? Why does that mean you need a disabled toilet? Can't you just use the normal toilet? All this time, I'm like at the bar being like, I'm gonna crap myself. (laughs) Like, Like, I'm having a grilling and I'm at the bar being like, I need the toilet. Eventually, his boss comes along and was like, yeah, yeah, I'll take you. And unlocked the door and stood by the door waiting for me. And I was just in the toilet like, what? I feel like I'm being policed to go to the toilet. And I'm not embarrassed talking about these sort of things. You know, people with bowel disease, you get very comfortable with toilet talk very quickly. But it's a case of like, what? And so many people with invisible illnesses, particularly bowel disease, will be like, yeah, this has happened to me. And it's so common, just people being like, I'm going to grill you because you've got your makeup on. You're in like a mini dress in a club. You look healthy. No way can you need a disabled toilet. It's like, yeah, well, I do. Going back to your teenage years, having to spend the time that you did in hospitals and managing those conditions. Did you get FOMO at the time seeing friends live more, in inverted commas, normal lives? And do you get FOMO about it now when you think back? So for example, my brain doesn't like me or doesn't allow me to watch shows about teenage excess and hedonism like Skins or Normal People because it reminds me of the life I wasn't able to have because I was bullied. Did you ever have similar feelings because of those conditions? I did. So it's very like flip a switch with me. So sometimes I will be like, 
God, there were so many things I missed out on, like ski trips and things like that. Because of my condition and being low in vitamins, I've got brittle bones. So I actually can't do lots of like contact sports. And skiing is obviously the pinnacle of break a leg. So my school was just like, no, you're not going skiing. You can come and like just watch, but like health and safety, we can't put you on the ski slope. Just things like that. And sometimes I just think, wow, that would have been really cool. At the time, at the time, I was gutted. But luckily, it turned out that the week they went skiing, I ended up in hospital with a really bad infection. So thank God I didn't go because I would have been, you know, in some Austrian hospital without my consultant who deals with all my infections there to help me through it. But yeah, there's been a lot of times where I have had that sort of feeling of god look what i missed out on another big one was like i missed out on boys fancying me or girls fancying me i missed out on people fancying me i literally looked like an advert for great ormond street hospital you know like when they had the kids walking up the corridor holding the like iv pole i looked like an advert that you would just basically use to like get people to donate to a hospital sometimes i do miss out on it and i just think like god it would have been nice to kind of have that skins lifestyle and how my friends were kind of going out and like exploring. And I, and I did, I did to some extent do those things, but only when I was well. And it was never to the same enjoyment. I don't think until I was 17 or 18, I really had that experience. But on the other hand, it sounds bad, but there were times when I'd be in hospital and I felt like the only person who mattered in the world. I think this is such a teenage mindset because now when I'm in hospital, I'm a nightmare and I hate it. Sometimes I would be in the children's hospital in Birmingham, which was a two and a half hour drive from my house in Wales. Sometimes I'd be treated there if I was very poorly and I needed, you know, some serious help. But if I was just having a minor infection and needed IV antibiotics for a week or I needed to be basically monitored for blood sugar or whatever. I'd be taken into my local hospital in Mid Wales, which is still an hour drive away. But because it was such a small children's ward, the nurses would get excited to see me. Like they'd be like, Flo, and give me a hug because I'd been in there. This is quite sad on reflection. But at the time, I felt amazing because these nurses knew me. They were like my friends. When they were having a cup of tea and chocolate on their breaks, one of them would come and bring me a Twix or something like I think look at all the other kids in the children's ward and be like, well, they're not doing that for you, are they? Like, they, they think I'm amazing. They would call me by my first name and know who I was. And I would know the nurses by their first names and ask them, oh, how's your kid? How's it? To me, I felt like I was the center of the universe, which I suppose was just a coping mechanism for being in hospital for so long. But sometimes I look back at my TGS and I think I learned a lot from being in hospital. When I was well enough, I was reading, I was watching films. Instead of sitting and like zoning out in maths class, I was watching The Grinch or something. I don't know. But yeah, I think it's very much a switch. Sometimes I'm jealous and I get angry. And other times I just think, hey, I had different experience and different can be good different can mean that you think differently to other people so sometimes I'm thankful for it sometimes I'm not so much you said to me off air that what came with your health conditions was an obsession over statistics could you elaborate on that for me yes so this is something that I have again I've reached the happy medium I'm I'm really like the last few months I'd say the last year I've really just come into contentment and just chilled out I think that one comes from leaving university and that wild lifestyle of kind of like nothing stable and also just I'm an adult now as much as sometimes I'm like 
I don't feel it. I am an adult now and I think that's stabilised. But I think the obsession over statistics, I haven't got over it, but I'm much better. Every condition and health condition has statistics, right? They tell us all like, oh, your chance of having a heart attack is blah, blah, blah in your lifetime or this and that. And everybody deals with these statistics, but you think it's not going to be me. The problem with having something like PSC, Crohn's is a very awful condition. It can be awful. People can need to be hospitalized for long periods of time. It can be serious. But in terms of like statistically and from a medical point of view, PSC is by far the more dangerous of the conditions, you know, has way higher mortality rates, etc. And that's the one that doctors worry about when they're treating me. And that's the one that when you go to A&E, because I've got another infection, which is really frequent in my conditions, just I get infections all the time because of my low immune system. You know, it's the one that doctors will go and go, oh, you know, like a bit of a, like a sad reaction to finding out that I've got it or you're so young or things like that. And I think that the statistic thing came from being like, as a kid, wanting to know about the condition I had. So like being 14, 15, all I did and all I had time to do was read about it. I was obsessed with knowing what is it that's going on in my body? What can I do to fix it? What can I do to get normal and slim and be conventionally attractive and a conventional person, you know, compared to all my peers? So I got a bit, bit obsessed about reading three things. And PSC has some really scary statistics. You know, you've got a one in five chance of biliary cancer, which is basically when you get biliary cancer with PSC it's more than likely to be terminal when you get that type of cancer. I've got, I think it's a one in four chance. I tried to not be too like specific with the statistics anymore, but I've got a high chance of bowel cancer, of skin cancer, just because, you know, I've got so much damaged tissue inside me. I am more than likely to need a liver transplant in the next few years. That can come with other risks. You know, you can then have risks of needing kidney transplants. I've got a risk of needing to have a bag for my bowel disease. There's all these different statistics that I suddenly became obsessed over. And I started thinking about things like, I haven't got bowel cancer and I haven't got this. So that must mean that I'm going to be the unlucky one who gets this. I can't dodge all these things. And then there would be things like, I was told that there was a like very high chance of me developing brittle bones and I developed them. There was a very high chance of me getting heart rate issues, like so my heart rate's higher than it should be, and I got it. So I, in my head, I was like being like, these statistics are coming true, and I very much started living in fear of these statistics that are just guidelines for doctors. And a do- really lovely doctor put it into perspective for me a few years back and said, these statistics are across the board, including all the older people who have this condition, who are going to be less healthy, have a much older body than you, you're comparing yourself to people who you shouldn't be comparing yourself to, which is kind of weird. It's the parallels between me comparing myself to people in work, to me comparing myself to patient zero sort of thing, you know. And in recent months, recent years, I've just kind of learned to live in, I'm like, I have beaten a lot of statistics as well. I just turned 24 a few weeks ago. And when I was a kid, well, I say kid, when I was a young teenager and diagnosed with the condition, they said that the average until you go into total liver failure and either need a transplant or unfortunately die of liver failure is 10 to 12 years for somebody with PSC after diagnosis. Turning 24 meant that I'd had it for 12 years. And I said to my doctor, how's my liver looking? And he was like, 
it's really good. It's much healthy. Obviously, it's not a pristine liver, but it's my internal organs are looking far healthier than any doctor would have expected when they were looking at me 10 years ago. I'm doing well. My body's doing well. So I've got to stop comparing myself to these statistics because they just probably won't touch wood come true for me. And living with these conditions, Flo, how important is self-care for you? Does it take on an even bigger significance than someone who doesn't live with long-term health conditions, do you think? Yes and no. So I think that I am very much somebody who, when I am feeling good, you know, I'm going through like a period of remission. I'm not in remission at the moment, but I was in remission throughout the summer. Do you know what? I was just like, plans, plans, plans. I'm going to be constantly doing stuff. But sometimes you've got to step back and be like, right, even though you feel really good right now, do you want to knacker yourself? Do you want to tie yourself out so then you have a couple of days where you have to be in bed? Or do you want a happy medium? Have a couple of days where, you know, you're spending time with your friends, but you're having face masks and you're doing the classic self-care thing is where you buy a face mask and you watch something. I don't know. I'm very aware that I need rest time, but sometimes in reality it doesn't become a reality I just feel really good feel healthy one day and I'm like right I'm gonna go on a massive walk or massive run because I feel like I can do it and I suppose that's a good thing in some ways that you know I do have days where I can push myself so much but self-care is important I need to learn to do more of it and just finally Flo what do you think living with these conditions has taught you about yourself do you think I think One is that I very easily compartmentalize parts of my life. Although my PSC and Crohn's do affect a lot of different elements of my life, I'm very good at putting on journalism brain and then putting on friend brain and family brain and then health brain. And I think the reason for that is, one, it's helpful in my career, but if you're growing up poorly, you have to compartmentalize because Otherwise, your entire personality and identity revolves around being the sick kid. Like you said earlier, I was surviving, not thriving. You know, I was just doing what I needed to do. And also, I do think that another skill is that I'm pretty empathetic with people, particularly people who are going through, who feel either marginalized or they feel their health or who they are isn't being represented very well because I kind of get it from a sick perspective particularly disabled stories disability stories if I have to cover I think it makes me a better journalist it makes me a better person being sick makes you a better person I think makes you better in a whole manner of things so I wouldn't change it some people ask me oh if you could just snap your fingers and get rid of your conditions would you and I think if somebody brought the magic cure to me right now Yes, I would take it. God, I would. But if somebody said, would you also want to erase your teenage years and erase that you ever had it? No, I don't want to be sick forever. But would I want to change the fact that it changed me? No. Our final topic of conversation flow, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? I would say it's good. I would say that it's to be expected given a global pandemic. So I obviously have some days I'm like pining for the before times, you know, it sounds like we're in some sort of disaster movie. But yeah, there are are days where I'm just a bit sad that I can't do what I used to do, particularly because all of my family 
and best friends are in Wales. Or I've got a couple of friends in Belfast as well. But they're all there and Wales has closed their border. You can't be traveling around during a pandemic. So I am missing them. But at the same time, I think that's not mental illness or that's not poor mental health. That's just to be expected. Whereas actually in terms of my mental health, how I am, I think I'm very stable, very content. And I think I'm doing well given the circumstances. Tell me about that first conversation you had with someone about your mental health. You know, who was it with? What impact did it have on you? And and how do you look back on it at the time now? Did it feel like a big moment or something quite insignificant and normalised? I think the first time that I had like a big conversation about my mental health was when I was actually, again, another hospital story. I was seeing my consultant and this was about two or three years ago. and. You know, I've had all my procedures, all my checkups, what I call my MOT. Every six months, I have certain scans and stuff to check my body. And I'd been feeling really rotten, really poorly. And in my head, I'd like built it up to be like, they're going to find a problem on this scan and they're going to be able to treat it and make me feel better. And the doctor just sat there really positive for me and was like, great news there's nothing sinister on your scans your disease is progressing a bit but there's nothing sinister and I was like oh what are we going to do about me feeling poorly then and he was like there is no treatment so that's another thing to add PSC doesn't have any effective treatment it has treatments that they experiment with but nothing has been proven to actually nail it on the head and there's definitely no cure that we found yet so he just kind of said well just rest up and see what happens. I just started crying. I was like, what do you mean rest up? You're meant to have some magical medication you can give me to make me feel amazing. And I was so upset by it. And I remember him saying, I can put you in contact with basically a medical psychologist who talks to people who've been got long-term health conditions. And I did talk to her for like just one session. And that was the first time I remember having like an open conversation. And by no means do I have a mental health condition. I would never pretend I do. And she didn't think I did. She just thought it was very healthy of me to have a very frank and open discussion about how I was feeling upset and a little bit lost at the time. The tears were coming from frustration. I just wanted something to change. I wanted the status quo to change and for me to suddenly feel really healthy. So that was the first time I had like a frank conversation. But I think that whenever I have frank conversations now like this, it tends to be with friends. And it tends to be about, to be honest, COVID times, checking in with people, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Somebody saying, oh, I'm actually, my anxiety's flaring up, or somebody saying, I'm feeling really low. It doesn't have to be a mental health condition. It can just be, I think, people can go through anxious periods and low periods without it being an actual condition or disease. And I think that it's triggering a lot of people this these times. And I think the frank conversations I'm having are the ones that are like checking in with people and people being honest back and saying that they're not feeling good. And what things do you find in life that do trigger your mental health? You said to me off air that taking your medication at one point was a trigger. What did you mean by that? When I was about 15, 16, typical like teenage rebellion phase, you know, I very much did not want anything to remind me of my condition. I'm very aware I've spoken a lot about my condition on this pod. I didn't want anything to remind me that I was sick. Again, I wanted to be that normal teenager that was like everybody else. And what is the biggest reminder staring in your face other than the symptoms? It's every morning waking up and, you know, popping like 
sometimes it would be like six sometimes at one point I think I was on 27 tablets in a morning it's not something that you can switch off and do subconsciously some people say they can right I never and I don't think I ever will be able to pop tablets out of those pill packets and not do it mindfully I feel like it's a process you get it out the cupboard you then open them you put them there you get your glass of water and doing that every morning was a trigger in itself when I was like a teenager because it was reminding me and I'd be like no I don't want to do this I don't want you to remind me so I remember my parents would be like can I take your medication you know with my breakfast and sometimes I'd just be like yeah taking it and I would put it off all day although I'd start getting this guilt like you need to take them it would be getting like two three o'clock in the afternoon when I'm meant to be taking them as soon as I get up I'd be like putting it off just because I didn't want to actually think about it but that made no sense because I was thinking about it the whole time when I wasn't taking them so now I just I've got them in my side table I wake up in the morning have my glass of water and do it and there's very little thought I acknowledge that I'm taking tablets I acknowledge that I'm popping out the packet but I don't anymore have that association of god I'm sick this is why I'm popping these tablets it's just a thing that I have to do to keep me as healthy as I can be and what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better you know which ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't okay so I have tried mindfulness I've tried yoga and meditation and all these things and I think again it's the happy medium for me that that's sort of like everything in moderation when I went all in on running or all in on yoga I just couldn't maintain it well because my waning energy levels so I basically I you know I've read the books on how running is good for making you feel better and all these things so I find that if I'm feeling good I go on a run if I am feeling a bit tired I maybe have a moment where I just play some nice music and just kind of have a lie down on the bed and have a bit of a relax And actually, the really important one for me has been, I spoke about it earlier on the pod, where I'm quite good at rationalizing things, which I think is really key for getting yourself out of any spiral. I think that, you know, when I'm comparing myself to people now on social media and being like, oh, why haven't I done this? Why haven't I done that? I then remind myself, step back, think about everything you've told yourself, Flo. They may have different privileges to you. They may have more energy than you. They may just be more talented than you. It doesn't matter. You are where you are and you have done really well. So stop that comparison, you know, just rationalizing things in my head, talking myself through them often just calms me down. Toxic masculinity is a big topic on this podcast flow, as you can imagine. And it's one I try and break down a lot. Hopefully in a few more years, toxic masculinity will be in a very small minority. What would you define it as? And what examples of it have you experienced that you can share with the listeners either through sexism or something else? I think a big part of toxic masculinity that I've come across has definitely been the inability of men to reach out, which is probably a really common one that you get on this podcast. But I think the men I've certainly come across can recognize when they're struggling, you know, like it's not that they're oblivious and, you know, they've got depression, they don't even realize it. They recognize, you know, if they're struggling with mental health issues. But I think people can struggle to reach out and get the support they need because they don't feel like a man for doing it. Or they feel like as a man, they're the one who can handle things. And, you know, it's up to them to do that. And I think that another one is, I suppose, the feminization of 
mental illnesses. So I think a lot of guys that I've spoken to, my guy friends who don't have mental health issues, very much being like seeing anxiety and depression is something that's, you know, what a lot of women go through. And, you know, oh, when a guy's low, you know, oh, yeah, we just go and like we ask him, is he all right? And he's fine, he's fine, you know, all that sort of thing. And I think that, again, it's just a case of men just compared to women are a little bit less likely to open up. And that is... That is because of the system we're in. You know, we need to recognize that I think men and women need to recognize the current way that things are. It doesn't benefit anybody. It doesn't benefit anybody because men feel like they can't open up, which is toxic. And then women feel like they can't get through to men. So, yeah, I think that, like you said, in a few years' time, hopefully things will change. And I think that the younger generation, like Gen Z, is definitely showing us some really promising stuff. Like I got, I'm always on TikTok these days. And, you know, I see what's going on. I think people, attitudes to mental health are changing. I think that the pandemic has also made people more aware of asking people and checking in with people. And just finally, Flo, what more do we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to? I think people have learned some really valuable lessons during the pandemic. I think people have learned to check in more, but there's always more you can do. I think continuing with checking in and seeing how people are doing um, is obviously very important. But I think also recognising that none of us are, unless you are, (laughs) none of us are mental health professionals. And I think there comes a point where you need to recognize when somebody needs help as well. You can't be superwoman or superman and you see somebody struggling and decide that you're going to be their savior. Or if you're struggling yourself, you can't. It's amazing that you open up to people and you open up to your friends and family. But if you're recognizing that perhaps you've got, say, depression and you're talking to somebody and you're talking to your friends, keep talking to them, but also recognize I probably need some professional help too I need to widen my support system it's easier said than done but I think that the wider your support system is the less pressure is on one person's shoulder but also you're spreading the load like a problem shared is a problem halved I know that's such a cringy thing to say but you can have a wide support network and I think that's really important given what we're going through and what is probably ahead Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a massive thank you to Flo for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for checking in with me. I hope this pod has educated a few of you about what it's like to live with a long-term health condition, especially invisible ones like the ones Flo lives with. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels, tell your friends or work colleagues about it, or if you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. Vent.